Welcome to the Heart of the Father podcast. We're glad you're here and able to listen in. We're praying the Lord will speak to your heart through this message and that you be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. You guys want to get your Bibles out? If you want to open up to Philippians chapter 1, I believe the Father is doing some pruning here. Heart of the Father. Pruning's a good thing. <clears throat> the Father prunes us, not because we did something wrong, but because we're doing something right. Right? He says, you've been bearing fruit. It's good. I'm going to prune you so that what? You might bear more fruit. I was sharing some of this with the young adults on Thursday. So we we have our cute little tree. And we see some fruit on there. And the father says, I want a bigger tree. I want to see more fruit. So what's he do? He gets out the pruning tools. And he goes to work. I believe that's what the Lord is doing here. Pruning. Father, we thank you for the work of your spirit. We thank you for the glory of Jesus. And we say yes to your pruning. Lord, we desire to walk in a greater measure of obedience in a greater measure of love and surrender to you. So I pray that as you prune this morning, we would surrender, that we would say yes to your word, yes to your will, yes to your ways. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Are you in Philippians chapter one? Let's look at, we'll start at verse 21. Paul, by the Spirit, writing this letter, he says, for me, living is Christ and dying is gain. If you're looking up at the screens, it may be a little bit different translation. They didn't have the one I'm reading from. But for me, living is Christ, dying is gain. Now, if we live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. Hopefully for you and I as well. And I don't know which one I should choose. I am pressured by both. I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that because of me, your confidence may grow in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. Verse 27. Just one thing. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel 
of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, working side by side for the faith that comes from the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your deliverance, and this is from God. For it has been given to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Having the same struggle that you saw, I had, and now hear that I have. Let's go back to verse 27. Just one thing. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. My title to the message today is Living Worthy of the Gospel. I've been meditating on this passage and this phrase specifically, and it's weighty. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. How do we know that we are living our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel? How do you know? Maybe we compare ourselves to our friend group, right? Like I'm the most on fire one out of all my friends. Therefore, I'm living my life worthy of the gospel. Maybe because you come here at the heart of the Father where we worship in spirit and truth and we preach the word from Genesis to Revelation. Therefore, you would say, hey, I, I live worthy of the gospel. But how do you know you're living worthy of Christ? And if you know, are you sure? I mean, we're talking about the eternal gospel. The man Christ Jesus telling us to live in such a way that is pleasing to him that honors him. And to, in order to determine this, I wanna tell us that we can't base it off of feelings, that I feel like I'm living worthy of God. A lot of people feel like they're not going to hell, but they're not living worthy of God. Are you sure? I'm asking you this question because I've been asking myself the same question this past week. Brandon, are you living worthy of the gospel? I want a deep inward conviction of the Holy Spirit that bears witness to me that my life is a life worthy of the Lord and fully pleasing to him. Do you want that? So it's real easy to get off the hook. Maybe we compare ourselves, as I mentioned, to some friends that we know in our friend group. I want to share a couple stories with us about some lives of some brothers and sisters who live in other parts of the country or other parts of the world. 
It's a book called The Insanity of God. It's a brother who did some mission work in Somalia, and he ended up leaving the missions field. He felt really discouraged, and he had a question he was searching out. He was searching out, can the gospel really survive in places where there's heavy, intense persecution? And so he begins this journey of interviewing and asking believers in different parts of the world about testimonies and what is God doing, and specifically in persecuted countries. And he shares some, some stories that I've been reading, and it gives me pause in my heart on, Brandon, what are you doing with your life? And it's good. It's a wrestle. I want to go deeper in the Lord. I want to walk with him in full obedience. So one of the stories he shares, the chapter title, it's called The Toughest Man I Ever Met. He didn't necessarily say where he met this man at, but he was interviewing him. It was in a black room, barely little light. This brother wouldn't allow him to see who he was. And so the guy interviewing, his name is Nick, he wrote this book. And here's what he says. He said, I listened to his story for about six hours. I quickly concluded that he was probably the toughest man I ever met in my life. During an earlier invasion of his country, the man told me that he led a squad of 15 soldiers committed to repel foreign invaders. He calmly recounted his experience. I took great joy in the name of Allah when I could sneak up behind an enemy soldier at night, silently cut his throat, and allow his blood to wash over my hands as an offering to the Almighty God. His descriptions were so graphic yet so matter-of-fact that one at one point, I almost unintentionally asked a question, how many people have you killed? I stopped counting when the number reached 100, he confessed. Those were the people that I killed personally, not in battle. And then he begins to share, he started having dreams. And in these dreams, he would see spots of blood on his arms. And the dreams progressed where his arms were dripping blood. And everywhere he would go, he would start having visions like in, in the natural of, of, of blood on his arms. And he was covered in blood and he couldn't get the blood off. And it goes on to say, I soon became convinced that I was going absolutely insane. Then one night the dream changed. As I stood there helplessly watching the blood run down my arms, I also saw in my dream a man standing before me. He was a man clothed in white with a scarred head. He also had scarred hands, a scarred side, and scarred feet. The scarred man said, I'm Jesus the Messiah, and I can get the blood off you if you will just find me and believe. And this man comes to encounter Jesus, gives his life to him, and begins, begins to serve the Lord. And at that point, he didn't have anybody to disciple him. In his country, there was no church that he could attend, no Bible study that he might join on his own. But he kept reading and studying the Bible. He did everything that the Holy Spirit told him to do. Eventually, he, became, uh, he began to smuggle Bibles, Bible portions, other Christian materials, and even the Jesus film over the mountains from another country into his own. He did that for two years. One day, he rounded a bend in one of the high mountains passes and found himself face-to-face -face on a narrow trail with a squad of 15 men that he used to lead. They had been on the lookout for their old commander ever since he had deserted them and disappeared. It had even been reported that he was now a traitor to Islam. 
Now they found him. They threw him to the ground and began to beat him. And it was their plan to beat him to death. But in that group, there was one Christian in the squadron of men who were beating this brother. There was a Christian and he told the other guys, hey, maybe we should keep him alive and maybe let's torture him to get information from him about who he's working for and what he's doing. And that group said, okay, yeah, let's do that. And so this undercover Christian took him down, down the road to the next city, away from the other guys, and he ended up setting him free. He lets him go. He goes on to write. At the same time, or, so he's, he's, uh, Nick here is continuing to ask questions about this brother's story. He says, I probed just a, a little bit more into his story. I said, you have told me that you are married, you have sons, and you led your wife and children to Christ, and that you have even baptized them. What I'm wondering is this, where do they fit into your ministry? You haven't talked about that. How do they help you? What is happening with your family? I was not expecting what happened next. The man leapt out of the darkness and suddenly stood face to face with me. He clamped his scarred hands down on my tight shoulders and his fierce dark eyes bored laser-like into mine. I instinctively thought of my earlier question about the number of men that he had killed. For hours I had listened to all inspiring stories, but now I was terrified as he shook, as he shook me and demanded to know, how can God ask it? Tell me, how can God ask it? I think maybe that's when my heart started to beat again. I realized that, this, that maybe he was angry at God and not me. My confusion cleared up even more as he went on to exclaim, I have given him everything. My body has been broken. I've been jailed. I've been starved. I've been beaten. I've been left for dead. I have even been willing to die for Jesus. But do you know what I fear? When I go to bed at night, what keeps me awake and what actually terrifies me is the thought that God might ask of my wife and my children what I have already willingly gave him. How can he ask it? Tell me, how could God ask that of my wife and my children? I paused for a few moments and prayed that the Lord would guide my words as I responded. Brother, my wife is, in, is safe in Kentucky I said, my two living sons are in school doing well. I told him a little bit of Timothy's story, who had already talked together about my time in Somalia. Finally, I told him, I personally cannot answer your question, but I would ask you another question that I have, that I have had to ask myself. Is Jesus worth it? Is he worth your life? Is he worth the lives of your wife and your children? He was undoubtedly the toughest man I ever met. He began to sob. He wrapped his arms around me, buried his face in my shoulder, and wept. When he finally stopped, he stepped back, wiped away his tears. He seemed angry at himself for showing this display of emotion. He looked me in the eyes again and nodded and declared, Jesus is worth it. He is worth my life, my wife's life, and he is worth the lives of my children. I have got to get them involved in what God is doing with me. With that, the toughest man I had ever met said goodbye. He turned and he walked out of the room. Does that sound like a life that is worthy of the gospel? I think we would all say yes. 
There's another story I want to recap for us here. This one is about a brother named Dmitri in Russia. He was under heavy communism in their country for years, and a lot of the churches were destroyed. And it was probably a two- or three-day journey to get to a church. And so he had decided, well, that's not going to be doable for my family and small children. So he decided to start uh, praying and reading the word with his own family. And he was doing that for a period of time. And they had windows in the homes with no glass. And so as they were worshiping, other neighbors would begin to hear them worshiping and were drawn to that. And so before you know it, he had a house church. And uh, he said he would never claim that he was a pastor. He just loved Jesus and wanted to serve his family and love his family well and love the Lord. It goes on to say, but when the group grew to 50, the authorities made good on their threats. I got fired from my factory job. My wife lost her teaching position. My boys were expelled from school and little things like that, he added. Then one night, as Dimitri spoke, the door to his house suddenly violently burst open. An officer and soldiers pushed through the crowd. The officer grabbed Dimitri by the shirt, slapped him across the, back and forth across the face, slammed him against the wall, and said in a voice, We have warned you and warned you and warned you. I will not warn you again if you do not stop this nonsense. This is the least thing that is going to happen to you. As the officer pushed his way back to the door, a small grandmother took her life into her hands and stepped out and waved her finger in the officer's face. I'm just picturing Marie right here doing this. <laughs> and sounding like an Old Testament prophet, she declared, you have laid hands on a man of God and you will not survive. That happened on a Tuesday evening and on Thursday night, the officer dropped dead of a heart attack. The fear of God swept through the community. At the next house church service, more than 150 people showed up. The authorities couldn't let this continue, so Dimitri went to jail for 17 years. Thanks, Marie. So Dimitri, our brother, goes to jail for 17 years. Horrific experience in, in prison. Two things he had mentioned that really kept him was worshiping the Lord, was singing to the Lord. He would get up each morning and sing what he called his heart song to Jesus. And he would sing it out loud in the jail cell. And people would yell at him, tell him to shut up. They would throw feces at him. They would do whatever they could just to get this guy to be quiet because he'd rise up pretty early and start singing to Jesus. That was one way that the Lord was keeping him. The other way was through scripture, that he would find little pieces of paper and he would write scripture on it. And he would say, Lord, this is your offering. So after years in prison, he was doing a lot of things that the guards didn't like. And so they eventually told him, he said, hey, just so you know, your family has been murdered. And they would actually torture him by saying that. You've killed your kids, your wife, they're, they're, they've been murdered, they're done. And it got to a point where Dimitri began to get so discouraged and, and hopeless and helpless. And he said, you have to let me out. I have to check on my, like I have to go and see for myself. And they said, we'll let you out if you recant your faith. And he was discouraged. 
And so he said, okay, tomorrow morning I'll do it. And so that night he goes to pray and he says, Lord, like I, this is the only option I have. Like what, what else do I do? And as he was praying, he began to hear voices. And he heard the voice of his wife and his children and they were praying for him. And he knew in that moment by the Holy Spirit that his family was alive. And so in the morning, the, 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 the guards come in and he's sitting, bed, he's sitting straight up in his, in his bed and he's saying, I'm not signing that paper. He's like, you lied to me. The Lord showed me my family's alive. And they are frustrated and irritated at him. And then it goes on to say this. Dimitri was dragged from his cell and as he was dragged down the corridor in the center of the prison, the strangest thing happened. Before they reached the door leading to the courtyard, before stepping out into the place of execution, 1,500 hardened criminals stood in, at attention by their beds. They faced the east and began to sing. Dimitri told me that it sounded like the greatest choir in all of human history. 1,500 criminals raised their arms and began to sing the heart song that they had heard Dimitri sing to Jesus every morning for all those years. Dimitri's jailers instantly released their hold on his arms and stepped away from him in terror. One of them demanded to know, who are you? Dimitri straightened his back and stood as tall and as, as, and as proud as he could. He responded, I am a son of the living God, and Jesus is his name. The guards returned him to his cell. Sometime later, Dimitri was released and returned to his family. Is that not a life worthy of the gospel? You guys got time for one more story? One more. It's, it's good. So Nick, he goes to China. He's meeting with some underground church leaders. He goes on to say this. Virtually every believer who I had met in China had either been to prison for their faith or they knew someone who had. They were personally aware of many of their spiritual brothers and sisters who had endured persecution and had come out of it with deeper spiritual roots, a more mature faith, and a greater appreciation for fellowship with other believers. They had also come out of the experience with a much stronger relationship with the Lord. One of the house church leaders actually asked me, do you know what prison is for us? It is how we get our theological education. Prison in China is for us like seminary is for training church leaders in your country. What an insight that was, and it certainly explained a lot about the wisdom that I had seen in Pastor Chang. He had graduated with honors from these three seminaries. Another very interesting discussion happened that evening. As a matter of course, I posed a question that turned out to be an effective discussion starter point on many of my visits. I asked this question. If I were to visit your home, communities, and talk with non-believing families, friends, and neighbors of the members of your house churches, and if I would point out your church members and ask, who are these people? What would you tell me about them? And what answer would I get? Many people started to answer at once. The response that jumped out to me, though, was the answer of a man who told me that his church neighbors would probably say, those are the people who raised the dead. Really, I blurted out involuntarily. Several of the men in the room, especially the older men, smiled and nodded. 
Then, as if to validate the claim, people around the table begin recounting story after story from their own churches, stories of healing, stories of miraculous answers to prayer, stories of supernatural occurrences, stories that could be explained only by the activity of God. These miraculous events seem to be milepost markers in their personal faith journeys. These were the happenings that had forever proven God's power in their minds. These were the stories that had drawn unbelievers into Christ's kingdom. What do we do with those stories? What do we do when we hear things that brothers and sisters all around the world are doing? At least I'm asking myself, what do I do with that? And I'm like, okay, that's a life worthy of the gospel. What am I doing with mine? Am I living in a way that's fully pleasing to the Lord? But here's the thing. Here's the key to living a life worthy of the gospel. It's summed up in one word, obedience. If you want to know you're living your life worthy of the gospel, ask yourself, am I obeying him? Is he, wor- is he worthy of my obedience, full obedience? Because some of us were never going to go overseas to the underground church in China and have to live that lifestyle. Some of us may never face heavy, heavy persecution or be at the point where either I recant Jesus or I die. But that's not the point. The point is obedience. How obedient are we to the Lord? How obedient are you to him? I told you the Lord's pruning us as a church. How obedient is heart of the Father This body of believers right here, how obedient are we to him? Ephesians 4.1 says, walk worthy of the calling which you have received. That word worthy in Ephesians 4.1 and in this passage here too, the, the word worthy has to deal with a balance, balance scale, it pictures that. You have your life on one end of the balance and to determine if it's worthy of something, you put the gospel on one end. Is your life, are you living in a way that's worthy of the gospel? Or is it the gospel is way up here and you have nothing to show forth? Kenneth Wee says, the saints are to see to it that their manner of life weighs as much as the gospel they profess to believe. That which gives weight to a Christian's life is the fact that his manner of life befits, is in harmony, and corresponds with the gospel he preaches. So I want to, this morning, test our obedience. We're going to go with me to Matthew 5. We're going to take some of the simple commands of the Lord, and I want to just measure our our level of obedience to Jesus. Matthew 5, verse 21. 
He says, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment, and whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in the front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. If we say we live a life worthy of Jesus, is it okay to be angry at our brother? If Jesus tells us to forgive our brothers and sisters 70 times, seven times, yet somehow we manage to talk that verse away and say, well, you know, you know, Jesus doesn't understand life. You know, life's hard and things happen. He commands us not to be brother, not to be angry, and that if you are angry, to actually go to your brother and deal with it. Do we actually obey the Lord in doing that? Do we actually go to them, tell them why we're angry, repent, or maybe show them what they've done wrong, whatever it takes? Are we willing to do that? My heart, my heart feels grieved at times where how, how much unforgiveness can actually be in the church. And even when it comes to church hurt, I'm not trying to belittle your story, but if you're walking around with church hurt and it's been a couple years by now, I would just simply ask you, when are you going to start obeying Jesus when he says, go to your brother, go to the pastor, go to your friend, go to whoever it was who hurt you and release them? Is he not worthy of that? Let's keep going. Verse 27, he says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Lust for us men, even women. Are we living in obedience to this? I mean, are you doing everything? The verse goes on to say, if your right eye causes you to sin, get it out. If your left arm, cut it off. In other words, do everything, do anything you can to resist sin. Have you done everything? Or you said, oh, well, I tried it one day and then it just didn't work, so now I'm done. No, sign up again. Try again and again. The Lord had to deal me, with me years ago. This issue of sexual morality, before I was married, before I met Allison, years ago, I was a Christian. I was in a lukewarm state. Spending the night with my girlfriend. We weren't having sex, but we were doing other things. 
I went to go take out my contacts. Her roommate had some, some contact solution. I put them in there, stay the night, wake up the next morning, put my contact in, and my eye started burning with excruciating pain. It, it was in so much pain that it shut, it clenched shut, and I could not open my eye to get my, I mean, I had to force myself to get the contact back out. Well, come to find out, there was, the, her contact solution had some sort of alcohol in it. So I go to the eye doctor and just, you know, they gave me some stuff to help it out. It wasn't helping. And I'm just in pain. I'm saying, God, please heal me. You're my healer. Heal me, Lord. You're so good and just all this stuff. And the Lord spoke to me as clear as day. He said, did I not tell you to stop staying the night at your girlfriend's house? I mean, it says here, if your right eye I think it was my, yeah, it was my right eye. That's about as clo- that's a real life experience, about as close as that verse you can get. I mean, I'm right there on the edge. But I, I immediately repented. I knew what he was talking about. He had warned me one, two, three, several times. And I knew it, but I avoided it. I wasn't living a life worthy of Jesus. I thought I was. I was worshiping God, going to church, right? It's the radical, most radical dude, you know, that I knew. It was me, right? He's like, no, that's not worthy of my son. This verse also reminds me of women, one of the things that blows my mind, especially when it comes to the millennials and younger generations, there's this, I guess it's a cool trend, where you wear less and less clothes. I guess that's the thing now. I mean, I gotta walk places and I have to go like this now. I mean, are belly buttons like really that cute? I mean, it's like, think about it. Your belly button, that's where the umbilical cord was there. If you ever cut one off, that's nasty. Josie, Zeke, Cadence, I cut all their umbilical cord off. That's nasty. If they would, I'll tell them, you, want to, don't, you don't want to show that. If you want to show it, let me get a real picture of what it was like when you came out the womb and see how blood and all that, yeah. I know if we're laughing, it's funny. That helps us swallow the pill a little bit more. But there's this thing, I'm, I'm speaking to uh, the women in here, the clothes you wear, is it worthy of Jesus? I mean, why, why do we dress like the world? I mean, I, I can go to a club in Tampa or the club I used to go to here in Lakeland and find same outfits in there, in here. Does it make sense? And then they 
they see us and they, they, we're just hypocrites. Our lives don't look any different from theirs. We're not set apart for the Lord. That's not worthy of him. It doesn't help these brothers out. And you may say, well, hey, that's my brother's fault. Tell him not to look at me. If you know you're causing your brother to, to stumble, do you think Jesus is going to be okay with you? Absolutely not. That's the core. This is, this is the word, okay? Right? I'm, I want to call you into obedience to this. Let's just keep going here. Let's look at verse 31. Here we go. I'm about to lose my job today. <laughs> Barry and Dave, hey, we just had elder appreciation. I bless y'all. I'm, I'm just... Verse 31, here we go. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, oh no, we're about to talk about divorce in the church. Is this not his word? I need you to buy in first that you love, let me remind you, you love Jesus, right? You love his word, right? You start throwing stuff at me, I'm going to say, hey, it's right here. I just read the script. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus, in this passage here, gives us one reason for divorce. Would you agree? Like Matthew 5, verse 31 through 32, he gives us one reason for divorce, sexual immorality. It's crazy how many reasons we've made up in the church. There's probably about 50 other extra biblical commands we've added to this verse. It reminds me of when God gave the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, by the time you get to the New Testament, the Pharisees had added up to 600, over 600 additional commandments. And I'm like, Lord, we've, we've done the same here. You said this. You gave one reason in this passage, 2022, fast forward to today, and we got probably 50 reasons why we feel like we can divorce our spouse. I don't like them anymore. Oh, they annoy. Oh. This is the word of God. Let's keep going. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it is God's throne or by the earth because it is his footstool or by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. Neither should you swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your word yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. So what they would do in the first century is they would swear by God and by Jerusalem and by everything they could swear by just to show how serious they were. And the Lord's saying, don't do that. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. So question, do you keep your word? This, you can stay where you're at. Psalm 15 
right? We love the presence of God. We want to be in his presence and bask in it, all, all this stuff. Well, there's a prescription here. In Psalm 15, he says, Lord, who can dwell in your tabernacle? Who can live on your holy mountain? The one who lives honestly, practices righteousness. And it goes on to say in verse four, and he who keeps his word, whatever the cost. Are we liars? Are we exaggerators? Do we keep our word? I know it's a small little thing, but is he not worthy of full obedience? Or does he get our partial? You guys want to keep going? Look, verse 38. We're just, this, is, this is the Beatitudes. We haven't even got to the hard ones. Like the Beatitudes makes us feel good. Like, oh, this is beautiful. This is good, Lord. I love the Beatitudes. Guys, are we even keeping this? You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, insert your name, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the one cheek, offer the other also. When's the last time you allowed yourself to be wrong? And you weren't grumbling, complaining, angry, just a hot mess. Slaps you on the one cheek. What's he say? Offer the other also. You willingly allow yourself to be wrong. Do you always have to be right? You always have to get the last word in. Hello, married couples. Always got to get the last word in. Let's keep going here. Go to chapter six. This one is huge as well. Verse one, be careful not to practice your charitable giving or your righteousness in front of people to be seen by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't post it on social media as the hypocrites do, as the world does, to be liked and to get comments and to get messages about what you just did. Some of you, you're going to go to heaven one day and you're going to realize how spiritually bankrupt you are because you post everything on social media. You tell everyone what you're doing and how awesome you are. And you know why you're doing that is you want to be seen by men. And what's the Lord going to say? Hey, when they liked that comment and when they posted something on there and made a comment, and they, that was your reward. If you wanted a reward, there it was. 
my wife, we've gotten a couple of gifts in the past uh, two weeks and they were actually anonymous. And I was like, I mean, we were uncomfortable. We were like, we gotta know who it is. We wanna say thank you. Like, who was it? And it was anonymous. And I'm like, oh yeah, like <laughs> people still do this. But can we get back to giving to people and it's okay you don't get recognition? It's okay to not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing? Can we just like obey these? Like to me, doing this is radical obedience. I feel like I'm learning what obedience, like this. Doing this is radical obedience, right? Coming to church on Sunday is not radical obedience. For some of you, it it probably is. If that's where you're at, that's okay. I mean, I, I used to think, and I'll be honest, I used to think I would, if there was a conference, I would show up early and I'd be praying, like, prayer. And then I'd be at the conference and I'd stay late and I'd be radical and worship in the front and do, and, like, and I'm like, that's radical obedience. God loves that. Now I'm like, uh, I mean, yeah. He likes that. But like, if I'm doing all of that, but I'm not doing any of this, that's not radical. I mean, the, I'm telling you, the, Lord, the Lord's pruning us. He's pruning me in this. He's showing me what is obe- obedience is doing this. We make up so much stuff that we think is radical and we think is obedient. And the Lord's like, that's not obedient. That's just a leisure. You get to go to do that. That's part of being a human. You get to go there and do that. That's great. What, r- living a life worthy of Jesus It takes radical obedience and it should cost you something. When's the last time your obedience cost you something? Coming here this morning didn't cost us anything. Maybe two bucks in gas. Jesus wants costly obedience. It's going to cost your relationships. It's going to cost your reputation. It's going to cost your material goods. Costly obedience. That's what the disciples did. That's what you, I read in here. Their obedience cost them something. I'm looking at my life and I'm like, oh, Lord, it, I mean, it, I don't know, it cost me time. A little bit of inconvenience here and there. But I'm realizing Jesus, he's calling you and me into greater obedience. We think we're obeying him. In a lot of areas, but we're not. Go back to Philippians 1. If the worship team wants to come, come forward, please do. So he says, just one thing, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. I just want to mention I came up with seven traits of a life that is worthy of the gospel. I'm not going to elaborate on any of these, but there's more than seven, but these just stood out to me. Holiness. Humility. The fear of the Lord. Radical servanthood. Sacrificial love. 
a oneness, a pursuit of oneness with brothers and sisters. Last one, a, a preparedness to suffer. I mean, is your, is your, when you think about your life, do you think holiness, humility, the fear of the Lord, radical servanthood, sacrificial love, a oneness, a pursuit of oneness with brothers and sisters, and a, not just a willing to suffer, right? Like we're all willing to do this or that, but are we actually preparing ourselves to suffer? Where our obedience to him will cost us something. I feel like the Lord is saying, Hot FM, there's a price to pay. Are you going to pay the price? We want to go to the next level and we think it's about blessing and more stuff and more. We're going to grow numerically. Like, no, 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 forget that. He's saying, Will you obey me in a greater measure? And it's not about us earning the gospel, right? Living a life worthy of the gospel is not me. Oh, I got to live away and I earn salvation. Nothing to do with earning. He's given us his kingdom freely. Full obedience to Jesus' commands is the ultimate act that says, Lord, you are worthy. The more we are convinced of his infinite worth, the more readily and radically we will obey him. When we fail to obey him, it has everything to do with us not seeing and believing his worthiness. So the question that is always before his people, how worthy is he to you? Is he worthy of a little or a half or is he worthy of all of our obedience? Revelation four, it says, oh Lord, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and because of your will, they exist and were created. Revelation 5, 9, you are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals because you were slaughtered. You redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign on the earth. And it goes on to say, the lamb who was slain is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. He is worthy of our full obedience. Everything. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to join us on a Sunday morning or other weekly gathering, know that you're more than welcome. And if you'd like other resources on or about this ministry, or for any deeper questions you may have, be sure to visit our website at hotfmlakeland.com.